I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Welcome back, guys. This is Rachel. This is With All Your Mind, and I'm here on a beautifully sunny afternoon, which is really nice because it's been cloudy and just dull outside, so it's really nice to see the sun. And I'm going to tell you guys something. I've been thinking about this, that for a long time after I started this podcast, every time I got out my microphone and set up my equipment, um, it felt like I had to figure it out all over again. And you know those things, there's certain things in life that are barely feel worth the effort because you feel like you have to learn them over and over again because they never quite click or you don't use it often enough. That's why I don't own a sewing machine. It's because every time I pulled it out, I was like, I don't, how do you use this thing? And I felt like I had to relearn it every single time. And I was like, this is not worth my time. I can be learning other things instead of learning how to use a sewing machine again. Um, So I, I feel like that with my microphone. And I feel like that every time I plug in a USB drive or a plug, (laughs) you know that? How you always have to turn it over at least twice to get it in? Yeah. Today I saw it and I was like, I know that's the right side. So I tried it like three times on that side and I finally got it in. Didn't have to turn it over this time. I'll call that a win. Okay, so what are we doing today? We are in our last of our three-part little series about textual criticism. And I hope you really enjoyed the last two. I hope you realized it's not such a big, scary thing. It's kind of weird. It's different. We don't talk about it a whole lot. I've heard um, pastors kind of defend against changing the Bible, and I didn't realize that they were talking about textual criticism. I didn't realize what the arguments were. I didn't realize what the history was. I had no context for what they were talking about. And I just kind of went with them like, yeah, that makes sense. And now that I know a lot more, I feel a lot more accepting of things that textual criticism comes up with. And I think it just takes a certain amount of humility to realize that we don't know everything and we'll never know everything. And textual criticism is the part of biblical scholarship that tells us, hey, we didn't know this before. Now, what to do with that information is a whole different story. But it's always good to realize that you don't know everything and to keep that in mind. Okay, so this is part three. In the first part of textual criticism, we just introduced it, gave it a general overview, give you some terms, what it's about, all that kind of stuff. In the second one, the last episode, we looked at a very modern case study, uh, the case of the Marys, to understand how textual criticism is still working and discovering things even in our very modern times. It's not, it's not something that belonged to the past and we're done knowing everything there is to know. No, there's still new stuff. Uh, we're still learning. But in this episode, we'll talk about things that the average person might encounter when reading their Bible. Where does textual criticism meet the average person? And when I started to prep for this episode, I knew exactly where I was going to start. And that is the very end of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16. And there's a little section at the end, Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. And this is where the rubber meets the road for normal people, right? Even if you're not an academic, 
if you don't read the news, if you don't care about textual criticism, this is where you, it gets into your Bible, whether you care about it or not, or want it or not, okay? It affects our everyday Bibles, not just arguments and discussions in the news and in the academic world. So, if you're able, if you're not driving or feeding babies or whatever you might be doing right now, if you're able, I want you to pause this episode, go find a print Bible, it doesn't matter which one, and look at Mark 16 verses 8 through 20 or 9 through 20. And just look and see what does it look like on the page. Are there any special notes in there? Uh, Does your Bible separate this passage from the rest of the book? Like, does it give it a few spaces and a line in between? It's the very last few paragraphs in Mark. And in two out of three of the Bibles that I regularly read from, there is a big fat note. And the passage is separate from the rest of the book with a line in between. So something is going on here, right? And my Bibles aren't super duper new. They're not published in the last five years. One of them I've had since about uh, 2000 or so. It's a very, it's a much older Bible for me anyway. Um, I don't have super duper old ones that the pages are falling out. So when reading this in my New King James Bible, which I think I got in about 2000 or so, there's just a two line footnote and it's very easily missed. And I actually did miss it the first time I looked. I had to go back again. I was like, there has to be some kind of note in there. And I went back and looked and I was like, oh, there it is, this tiny little note. But as far as the passage goes, everything looks normal. And you can just read Mark without a care in the world. You can just read it and not wonder what's going on. When looking in my NIV study Bible, that last three paragraphs of Mark are separated out. And here's what the footnote says. There's no notes in with the text. There's just a footnote down at the bottom of the page. It says, Serious doubt exists as to whether these verses belong to the Gospel of Mark. They are absent from important early manuscripts and display certain peculiarities of vocabulary, style, and theological content that are unlike the rest of Mark. After extensive study of all manuscripts, many scholars believe that one or more scribes took a hand at, quote-unquote, writing a more appropriate ending, using the information from other Gospels to avoid their own discomfort and to, quote-unquote, fill in the blanks for future generations. Still, the book through verse 20 is included in the New Testament canon, the authorized scripture of the church. Okay, so that's the footnote in my NIV archaeological study Bible. It's a bigger Bible. It's, it's really big, actually. It's pretty fat because it has a lot of notes in there. So if you still haven't gone to look, please check and look. Um, look at your Bible. See what kind of note is in there. But how do you feel after hearing that NIV study note? And maybe you've read like notes like that in your Bible. But what is your reaction? How do you feel after hearing that information? Do you think, oh no, somebody messed with my Bible, um, making speculations about what is and isn't in my Bible? Or do you think, pretty similarly, uh, scholar jerks messing with my Bible, leave it alone? Or if you go back and read the New King James Bible that has barely a footnote in it, Do you feel betrayed or left in the dark? There's a lot of different emotional reactions that you can have to this kind of information. And the best thing that you can do is read the notes and find out if there are more notes. 
And in both of my study Bibles, there was additional notes, not just down at the bottom of the page, but somewhere else in the Bible. I had no clue that my ESV Bible, which is actually Ryan's, um, I'm the one that uses it the most though, so it's, I, I'm not adopting it. It's still Ryan's Bible, but I'll call it mine. Um, my ESV study Bible has a pretty big article at the back of the Bible about textual criticism. And guess what? I'm basically just using my two study Bibles. Okay, they're both Ryan's. <laughs> they're both Ryan's. My two study Bibles for most of the information for this episode. So that means that if you want or need extra information about textual criticism and the historical blah, 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 everything about the Bible, you might be able to get a lot of it just from a good study Bible. Okay, so that's really good news that Bibles are doing a pretty good job of explaining themselves to you. Okay, so the reason I picked the NIV study note to read to you, though, was because I thought it was pretty balanced. The ESV goes further with it. Uh, It's kind of more scholarly. And I thought that the New King James didn't go far enough. If it's contested, can you tell me why? They don't. They just say, hey, other people feel that this is contested. And then they just move on. So what we need to do first before we talk about anything else is why do these different Bibles have these different notes? Because if you can just rely on a Bible and it will give you a lot of information about this stuff, they do it in really, really different ways and you need to know the difference between them. One of the things that I learned while reading the introduction to my New King James Bible is that the manuscripts and sources used for that version of the Bible are pretty much the same as the ones used for the King James Bible. That means that they haven't taken anything else into consideration as far as other manuscripts are concerned, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls and all the major Greek manuscripts that have been made public or discovered after the King James Bible was published. This includes pretty much everything in the Vatican Library, which includes one, no, one, yeah, just one, of the oldest Greek Bibles in the whole world. So basically, all of the oldest versions of the Bible, whether Old Testament or New Testament, were discovered or made public after the publication of the King James Bible, right? So the tradition and collection of manuscripts that was available at the time of the King James Bible, what they had to work with to translate the Bible, that's called the Textus Receptus. Okay, the received text. That's what they used. Those are the manuscripts that they had available for the New Testament. They call it the Textus Receptus. And you'll run into that name a lot if you look into how the Bible is put together and the history with it and blah, blah, blah. Kind of what we're doing here. Textus Receptus or received text. That's what was available. The collection of manuscripts, what they knew of what they had to work with as far as copies of the New Testament, everything that was available at the time of the publication of the King James Bible is called the Textus Receptus. And the King James Bible was published in 1611, okay? So Textus Receptus, it's kind of like a a way of thinking about New Testament manuscripts at the time of the King James Bible. So the King James And New King James Bibles today still base their translations on that collection, the received text. 
There aren't too many other modern versions of the Bible that still stick to just the Textus Receptus, but the Amplified Bible is one of them. And I looked through a list, and I think there was only two or three other Bibles that are still used in modern times that use the Textus Receptus as their source for New Testament translation. So it's really not well used at all anymore. Other versions of the Bible and any major translation that you can think of that's a modern translation, NASB, ESV, NLT, NIV, uh, the Net Bible, um, name one, it's probably based on a different collection of manuscripts, one that includes all of the most recently discovered and available ones. So that's the basic difference between older and more traditional versions of the Bible, and more modern translations. The King James and New King James are basically not accepting any new information from other texts that have become available. So Dead Sea Scrolls became available in the late, well, they were discovered in the late 1940s, but they didn't become available for scholars to use to inform the Bible or to give different insight into it until the 70s, 80s, and even 90s. But the New King James and the King James Bible aren't using anything that has become available more recently. So that's an important note to make for yourself to, have you ever looked at the footnotes in your Bible and seen it say, the Vulgate says X, but the Septuagint says Y, Um, and the New King James does that too. So what they're saying is, we don't take that information into consideration, but you can if you want to. They do take into consideration the Septuagint and the Vulgate because they're very old, but they wouldn't take into consideration something like the Dead Sea Scrolls or what is called Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus because they were discovered or made available in the 1800s. They're being responsible to tell their readers all of the information available, even if they aren't using it themselves and letting it affect their text. Does that make sense? So New King James... King James, Amplified Bible, and then just a few other versions that are written in the 1800s or even earlier. I think the Darby translation and the Webster Bible are two of them. These are Bibles that don't take any new information in from more recently discovered things, but they will tell you what those things say. All right, so let's take a look at some of those footnotes that you can see even in the New King James Bible. And we can even stay on the same page in Mark to do it, okay? So this is kind of an odd example, but I I wanted to show that even on the same page in Mark, you could see a footnote like this, okay? So in my New King James Bible, in chapter 15 of Mark, there are four footnotes that say something like the NU text does not include or says or whatever. So here's an example, Mark 15, 32. And this is the chapter where Jesus is on trial and crucified, so it goes through the whole scene. And we're in the part where the chief priests are talking and making fun of Jesus. And verse 32 says, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. That we may see and believe. There's a footnote at the end of that verse that says, the NU text says, that we may see and believe him. All right, so the New King James says that we may see and believe. The NU text says that we may see and believe him. It's the difference of one word. It's just him. It doesn't change the meaning. 
We understand the same things the same way in both versions. It's just the difference of one clarifying word. It makes it a little bit more clear. If somebody was a little bit more um, needed more specific language, that would be better. Um, but the New King James Version doesn't include that one word because it wasn't in the versions they were using or not enough of them to for them to see it as original. However, other Bibles, other newer translations of the Bible do see it as original, probably because of that textual criticism law of quantity and not quality. Remember that law? That law says that if the majority of a text have something and it looks right, and, and other laws too, it's not the only law of textual criticism, but you go by quantity. You go by what do the majority of the texts have? And so they have more text to look at. It's going to change what they see as original based on what does the majority say. If they have 20 extra manuscripts the New King James doesn't have to work with, that might just sway the average a little bit so that a word is included where the New King James wouldn't include it. Does that make sense? And in all these places, in all these footnotes, it's really minor things that are being changed. Um, it usually doesn't change the meaning at all. It's usually a clarifying word or um, a slight grammatical change, things like that. But here's the point. <laughs> here's the point I'm trying to get to. You can see how there's a fundamental difference in how some versions of the Bible decide on their text. You first of all have to decide, do you want to base your version on a more traditional standard, one that most of history used, but doesn't benefit from everything discovered or interpreted in the last 500 years, because that's how long it's been since the King James Bible was published, 500 years. Or do you want to be a little more daring, less traditional, and accept new information, right? So both of them have kind of challenges. Both of them feel a little bold because you're making a decision one way or the other, and you have to decide which way feels more right to you. And to you, I mean the publishers. So all of the versions that move those last 11 verses of Mark to their own part of the page have made a decision to accept new information, and that information says, we know that this part is, a, is part of canon. It's, it's recognized scripture. We're not saying anything about that. But it may not be original to when Mark wrote the book in the first century. A later scribe or scribes might have added it even up to 100 years later, and they're not sure exactly when. And, and this is where, this is where it gets interesting. You might be able to say, okay, you know, there were scribes and editors in other parts of the Bible, and I'm okay with that, blah, blah, blah. This is where it can be challenging to other people. This is where a lot of assumptions and beliefs about the Bible can be challenged. If you believe that the original manuscripts were inspired and without mistake, the original, like <laughs> Mark sitting down at his desk and writing it out. Luke sitting down at his desk and writing it out. Paul sitting down with a, a scribe to write things down for him. If you think those original manuscripts, the first pieces of paper or papyrus or parchment that had stuff written down on them by Isaiah, by Moses, by Luke, by Mark, those were inspired and only those, then you won't know what to do here. You won't know what to do with this information. 
right? Because if later scribes added on to Mark for whatever reason, because it was in another, you know, in another gospel and they're like, oh, Mark doesn't have this in there. Let's put it in there because we know this should have been a part, but uh, he got sick and he couldn't finish it or whatever the story was. What, what do you do with this part now? So some people see the original manuscripts of the Bible being inspired and that's how they can say, oh, well, there's different translations now that aren't inspired, even though it says, you know, the word of God is inspired. There's just different theories for how to explain how the word of God is inspired, right? And this kind of information challenges some of those theories. So what do you do? <laughs> if you think the original manuscripts are inspired, what do you do with this part? Do you reject this part of Mark and see it as invalid? And you can see how it starts to get and feel very messy. And it feels much easier just to not use new manuscripts, newly discovered, to give insight into the Bible. It's just simpler. But it doesn't quite feel honest to me. Like it feels like we're just going to close our eyes to everything that happens in the world anymore. It just, yeah, it just doesn't feel quite right. So let's look at how the ESV study Bible explains this problem because they do a pretty awesome job. And I'm just going to read you a bunch of notes from Ryan's ESV study Bible. Okay. So here's the footnote that's actually on the page in Mark with that last section of Mark. Some ancient manuscripts of Mark's gospel contain these verses and others do not which presents a puzzle for scholars who specialize in the history of such manuscripts. This longer ending is missing from various old and reliable Greek manuscripts, especially Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. They're just two really famous um, manuscripts of the Bible, as well as numerous early Latin, Syriac, Armenian, and Georgian manuscripts. Early church fathers, for example, Origen and Clement of Alexandria, did not appear to know of these verses. Eusebius and Jerome state this section is missing in most manuscripts available at their time, and some manuscripts that contain verses 9 through 20 should be read with caution. As in many translations, the editors of the ESV have placed this section within brackets, showing their doubts as to whether it was originally part of what Mark wrote, but also recognizing its long history of acceptance by many in the church. The content of verses 9 through 20 is best explained by reference to other passages in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. Most of its content is found elsewhere, and no point of doctrine is affected by the absence or presence of verses 9 through 20. All right, so from that note, there's a few things that we can figure out with the help of some other information. First, those reliable Greek manuscripts it's talking about, Sinaiticus and Vaticanist, are two of the oldest and most complete Greek manuscripts that we have in the world, in the history of the world, basically. It's saying that the two oldest manuscripts that we have don't have this section. And then it mentions people that didn't have it or knew of it, but knew that it wasn't in most of the manuscripts that they had ever seen. Origen was from the 200s AD. Clement was from slightly earlier. Eusebius was a historian from the 300s, and Jerome was the guy that translated the Latin Vulgate, also in the 300s. So these are knowledgeable guys that had their hands on lots of different manuscripts or 
would have talked a lot about a lot of different manuscripts and that basically they had heard of this passage or now two of them hadn't two of them hadn't even seen this passage they never talked about that passage in their writings and then two of them knew about the passage but said that most manuscripts didn't have that passage most bibles at the time didn't have that passage so <laughs> basically we don't know what's going on it looks like a lot of early people didn't have this section but all of the later manuscripts do. So it's generally accepted that this section might be a later edition, but even so, it's an uncontested part of the Bible. So is that a happy medium of conclusions that basically it looks like scribes may have added it later, but we leave it in the Bible because it's fine to leave in the Bible? And if that doesn't confront typical ideas about inerrancy in the Bible, <laughs> I don't know what does, but it muddies the water up, right? What's important to note out of all of this is what that ESV note said at the end. Most of the content found in that odd passage is found elsewhere in the Bible, and it does not change, add to, or otherwise affect any doctrine. So it might be an extra bit, but it doesn't change or contradict anything else. So textual criticism affects your Bible whether you know about it or not, and I'm mostly talking about English translations. I looked in my Russian Bible, my modern Hebrew Bible, which includes the New Testament. I looked in an Arabic online Bible and a Spanish online Bible, and none of them had any notes about this passage, and they all included Mark 16, 9 through 20, and they didn't say anything about it. Okay, so this is an English, <laughs> an English Bible confusion, basically. But this is where textual criticism affects your Bible. It explains things, but for some people, that explaining doesn't really help them. It makes things more complicated, confusing, and doubtful. So if that's you, if, it, if these kinds of notes make you frustrated or doubtful or overwhelmed, you're not alone. And the Bible, <laughs> the Bibles that we see this in know that. That's why the ESV has an even bigger section in the back that explains even more that you don't need to worry. But modern demands of the Bible might need to be relaxed a bit, okay? So let me explain that because I think this is the most important point. There was an article at the back of the ESV Bible called The Reliability of the New Testament Manuscripts. And it's two pages long, so I'm not gonna read the whole thing. Uh, it was really good though. I'm really glad that I read the whole thing, but this is how it started. Today, any group of Christians gathered together can all read exactly the same words in their Bibles. That luxury is made possible by the invention of the movable type printing press over five centuries ago. But such a luxury can also breed, this is the important part, such a luxury can also breed a false sense of confidence that the precise original wording of the Bible can be known. When it comes to the New Testament, the original 27 books disappeared long ago, probably within decades of their composition. Handwritten copies must be relied on to determine the wording of the original texts, yet no two manuscripts are exactly alike, and even the closest two early manuscripts have at least a half dozen differences per chapter. <laughs> Let me say that again. 
even the closest to early manuscripts have at least half a dozen differences per chapter. So not a jot or tittle will disappear from the word of God. <laughs> we have to interpret that differently now. And that, that feels a little scary because it seems to contradict the Bible itself. But here's what that article goes on to say. Those differences are almost always so minor as to be pointless in mentioning them. We talked about them in that first textual criticism episode, and it was things like spelling differences, differences in whether something was abbreviated or not, synonyms that were used. And we also, here's another interesting one, we also have so many manuscripts to compare because as the ESV note says, I love this little quote, compared to any other ancient Greek or Latin literature, the New Testament suffers from an embarrassment of riches. There's just so many manuscripts. There are still 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts in existence today in 2023. Well, I guess the Bible was published, I think it was 2018. So 2018, 5,700 Greek manuscripts in existence, starting from as early as the second century. And that doesn't even count the thousands of early manuscripts in many other languages, like the early translations. That would bring the number of early manuscripts up to over 20,000. 20,000! That's a ton, right? And again, what kind of textual variations are we usually talking about? There are four categories that the ESV Bible mentions. Number one, spelling and nonsense errors. Okay, so just spelling where a name is spelled differently from one writer to another, or they spell a word wrong, that happens. And then there's what they call nonsense errors, which is really fun. It's where you read something and it clearly doesn't make sense because they put the wrong word in there. And it's usually just a spelling problem, but it spells a different word. So there's one spot in the New Testament where instead of saying we were little children among you, it says we were horses among you. And it's because it was one difference between little children and horses. It would be like the difference between in English, like horses and morses, you know, Morse code, but morses. It's clearly the wrong word, so that's nonsense errors. That's the first category. The second category is minor changes and synonyms, where you might have learners and students and disciples. They mean pretty much the same thing, and one manuscript might use student, and another one might have learner. And there's also really minor grammar things that you can do in Greek that we can't do in English, to make changes. For instance, the definite article, the, in Greek could be optional sometimes. You can put it in front of a name and you could leave it out. So you could talk about the Caesar or you could talk about Caesar. You could talk about the Matthew or you could talk about Matthew. English doesn't do this nearly as much. We don't use the definite article nearly as much. But this is why Spanish speakers usually use the definite article so much is that they use it so much in Spanish. So when they talk about the life or the love, it's because in Spanish it gets the definite article. It's not because they don't understand that concept. It's because of a difference in grammatical usage between Spanish and English. So even in Greek though, that article, the, would sometimes be used and sometimes it wouldn't be used for the very same word. So that's a difference in manuscripts. 
The third category is when you'd have more meaningful changes, but we know what the original was, such as if it was originally Gospel of God. All of the manuscripts we have before 500 ED in one section say Gospel of God, but then other ones in the 700s and 800s AD start saying Gospel of Christ. We know which one is right, and we know which one to use, but we see variations. That's the third category. The fourth category, which is a very small category, this one doesn't happen very much, is meaningful and viable. That means that something is different, and it might be original, and it's just very different. So the end of Mark 16 is one of the few things in the whole Bible that falls into category four. A few others, if you're interested in looking this up, this might be interesting. A few others are John 7.53 through 8.11. It's a contested part where we're not sure, and I shouldn't say contested really. I should say we're not sure if it's original to when John was writing down this gospel. It might have been added in later from a scribe. So John 7.53 through 8.11, that's the only other bigger passage in the entire Bible that we're not sure if the original author originally wrote it. And then another one is 1 John 5, 7 to 8. There's just one part in there uh, 1 John 5, 7 through 8. One part of one of those verses. And you can Google that one and you can find information about that one. That one right there, I discovered part of that verse was in my New King James Bible and not in my ESV and not in the NIV. And it made me want to ditch my New King James for a while. Because that one was an obvious, like, we shouldn't have it in there. And then I was like, you know what? It really doesn't matter to me. I don't, I don't care so much as to, like, ditch a Bible over it. And it doesn't change the meaning of anything. It makes a difference if you're doing one of those super intense, in-depth Bible studies where every line has to have a particular meaning and you have to kind of delve into the depths of the meaning of every verse. Then it becomes a problem. A little bit because I actually did that once. I did an in-depth Bible study of First John and I remember being a little bit confused about that verse but it didn't change anything for me in understanding the Bible and understanding theology and understanding my relationship with Jesus. So I was like you know what never mind I don't care. So basically <laughs> Bible publishers have several things they must do. They must basically cite their sources and tell you where they're getting their information from. Second, publishers must decide whether to rely on that older, more traditional body of manuscripts, the Textus Receptus, or a broader, more comprehensive one. There's no option to just not make a choice. Every decision is a choice for or against taking a manuscript into consideration. So that would be why the King James tradition will tell you what the Septuagint and the Nestle Allen texts say without them necessarily relying on it themselves. Lastly, every Bible publisher must decide on a strategy and philosophy for how they want to present their information. They have to portray all this information in some way or another. They have to decide on how to phrase a text they have to decide on how to phrase a footnote, what kind of footnote to put in. Everybody has to do it, basically. 
And, and they have reasons for why they do the things that they do, and they will defend it. So if you look up the preface to your Bible, they're going to defend how they wrote out their information and why they made the decisions that they do. And if you're like me, I'm kind of, I don't know if it's gullible or what, but I read something, I read a defense of something and I believe it. I'm like, yeah, sounds good. And then I read the next thing and I'm like, oh no, that first thing was totally wrong. And then I read, I go back and forth. I'm all over the place. So if you're like me, you can read your Bible, you can read the introduction, read why they picked the body of manuscripts that they did and be fine with it. (laughs) And you might just be fine with the other one, even if they're in different camps. What it comes down to is that the individual reader or church or denomination has to decide whether they agree or disagree with them. And that's a lot. That seems like a lot more than the individual Christian has had to do through it, you know, through the time, through history. But you know, this is another thing that I realized. Practically every Bible published throughout history has been met with criticism and controversy. The Septuagint was eventually looked down on by Jews and seen as a Christian document and rejected, even though it was originally translated by Jews for Jews. The Latin Vulgate was seen as practically blasphemous and dividing the church. The Wycliffe and Tyndale Bibles were published in spite of heavy pressure and threats of punishment. Some people that read the King James Bible only see all other later Bibles as corrupt. And the King James Bible itself was published almost despite the Catholic Church. It was written with Anglican doctrine in mind. And King James asked that they keep doctrine in mind and not translate it in any ways that would seem to agree more with the Catholic Church. And I could go on. (laughs) Because if you're a modern Hebrew speaker, up until recent times, you had to read the original Hebrew Old Testament from 2,000 years ago because of controversy with updating it. So what I always come back to after researching these things is that we are so spoiled with so many options and versions of the Bible and information that it often leads to more questions and problems than an enjoyment and understanding. So it's hard to feel like we understand more and can enjoy more when you don't understand the context that we're in with all of it. Our context is that we have more, have been given more, and can understand more about the Bible than perhaps at any other time in history. Ryan just sent me an article, um, I think it was like three days ago. Do you remember the Amorites? Um, They're, you know, in the list with all of the other Canaanite tribes that are in the land that Israel, the nation of Israel will have to defeat before getting into the land. There's the Amorites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, all the ites, right? Amorites. So Ryan sent me this article that the language of the Amorites, one of those Canaanite tribes, has been discovered, the language has, and translated for the first time ever. (laughs) First time ever in our generation. And that's already rewriting history since it was previously thought that the Amorites might have been a general term for Canaanite tribes because we had no evidence of them being a distinct ethnic or linguistic group. And now we do. And so history is different just because we have discovered the language of the Amorites. 
Um, when I finish this season, I'm going to do a little bit of a book review. And I'll mention a book that's going to have to do a rewrite because they mentioned the Amorites. And so yeah, we'll talk about that one later. So, so we have to do two things, basically. We have to number one, be grateful for all the information we have. And number two, assume that we still don't have it all. And I, for me, I just end up feeling bad <laughs> for Bible publishers that have to make these kinds of decisions, knowing that they're just going to get all sorts of flack, no matter which way that they make their decision, they're going to get flack for it. So maybe pray for Bible publishers that have to make these decisions and portray their information in certain ways. They have to decide how to package it all up. Because they don't have the luxury, like we do, of sitting back and just criticizing others who have to choose how to word the Bible and what kind of footnotes to put in. Um, and, and maybe they do criticize others, but that's kind of hypocritical. But basically what I'm trying to say is English speakers in modern times have a glut of information. We just have too much information sometimes. And it makes life feel much more complicated. Nothing has changed. The Bible is still what it was. Uh, we just know a ton more about it. And we can find ways to be grateful for that and use it in good ways. Uh, we just have to be deliberate about that. All right, so I'm going to stop there. We're all done with our textual criticism. We're going to move on to something a little bit different next. I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you learned a lot. This is a really interesting topic. So many different things we could have talked about. But yeah, we couldn't drag it out forever. But I hope you guys enjoyed and I'll talk to you again next time. Bye bye.